Welcome to today's Power Up Your Presence podcast. I'm Diane Craig. Thank you for joining me. I've designed each and every episode to help you power up, step up, and lead up your presence. A mix of stories, tips, insights, and conversation with trailblazers who speak candidly about their journey to leadership. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's show. I would like to introduce to you our very special guest today, Dr. Dave Williams. Dave, welcome. Well, thanks very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to chatting about leadership moments today. Well, you know, Dave, you've been a guest on our show before, so a big welcome back. And the first time as our guest, we explored your journey becoming an astronaut and all of the wonderful stories from your days at McGill to becoming a medical surgeon, uh, the process of applying to become an astronaut, your spacewalks, your health challenges, becoming an aquanaut, a father, and to this day, an incredible leader. So, so, so happy to see you with us today. And I just want to say that for all our listeners, I encourage you to listen to two full episodes of narrative that Dave has shared with us. And you will find it so engaging as I did. And Dave, at the time, we celebrated your book, Define Limits. And today we are here to celebrate another Page Turner friends. Yes, a really super read. This new book, Leadership Lessons from NASA, is co-authored by you and Dr. Elizabeth Howell, who unfortunately couldn't join us today. I actually would still like to share a little bit about Dr. Howell because she's a Canadian journalist uh, focusing on space exploration for the past 20 years. What a niche. I'm sure that because she's had some amazing experiences, Dr. Howell has seen, uh, I know she's seen rocket launches in the United States and Kazakhstan, lived on simulated Mars base, and interviewed dozens of astronauts. So what an interesting career she's had. And Dave, who better to co-author this book with you? Well, we had a lot of fun writing the book. It's, uh, writing a book is an interesting experience in itself. But uh, working with Elizabeth was a lot of fun. Uh, we divided it up into different sections, worked together really hard to edit it, make sure that uh, we had a common voice throughout. And then, of course, the incredible team at ECW Press that published the book was really helpful in all the final edits and getting it to market. Oh, that's fantastic. This book is really filled with tons of gold nuggets for leaders and all our listeners, if you are serious about leadership, I encourage you to get your copy as soon as possible. You will be captivated and it will help you reflect on your own leadership journey. So I have several questions for you today, Dave. And That's my first right. question, my first question actually is right from the get-go in chapter one, you're right. Failure is a true test of character. It is what you do when you don't succeed that determines if you will ultimately succeed. 
Then you go on saying that there's no specific formula for success as a leader. So when NASA was launched, you write that Eisenhower chose Thomas Key Glennon as the first NASA leader. And this was surprising to many because after all, Glennon's profile didn't seem to exactly fit the profile for what I would say the right leader. He had been a university president with a background in the motion picture industry. And now the, the, the president of the Case Institute for Technology. But in the end, Eisenhower was correct. Glennon turned out to be the man. So according to you, like what made Glennon the right leader for this huge space initiative, even though he had no industry experience? You know, the story is just such an incredible story. And that's why we wrote the book really is to capture these unique leadership moments from NASA's history. We know about the space history, but understanding the leadership is really important. Turns out Glennon didn't even think that he was the perfect choice. When he met with President Eisenhower, he said, I, I don't know anything about space flight. I don't know anything about rockets. I'm right now running a Case Institute. And uh, I think it was really Jim Killian, Eisenhower's science advisor, who knew of Glennon, knew of his background, knew of his leadership accomplishments in different areas. He'd worked in the U.S. Navy, but he'd worked in Hollywood, in the motion picture industry, in the sound area. He was working at um, Case Institute, trying to build that as an academic organization. And I think one of his real skills was identifying fantastically talented individuals and putting together large groups of people into effective teams that were working to be able to build organizations. So it was really that leadership uh, background that he had in building organizations that was critical for NASA in the early days of spaceflight. Hmm. So in the end, I suppose you did have a formula, right? Finding somebody with great leadership skills to apply and transfer to the space industry. Yeah, there's no quite, there's always a formula. The thing is, though, in leadership, the challenges always differ. So you can't take True. the same formula and think you're going to get the same results. It depends on the situation that you're facing. So getting the right leader for the right circumstances at the right time is critical. And Keith Glennon got NASA off to a fantastic start. Yeah. So also, we know that creating an environment that's press, uh, which is so important in business, is one of the things that he did. So, for example, uh, the plan for Ap Apollo, uh, Ap Apollo sorry, would come, but first NASA uh, team had to learn how humans lived and worked in space. And there was a race between Russia and the United States. Uh, Gil Root, who was leading uh, Glennon's new space task group at the time, uh, had a team of outstanding engineers who worked tirelessly to produce an outstanding report resulting in the creation of Project, Project Mercury, which was all about putting a man into orbit and return him safely home, right? Ideally, before the Russians. So for that to happen, there had to be an environment of trust, uh, an environment where everyone knew they, they could rely on each other. So Gilruth created that. So from your perspective, Dave, how did he do it? 
you know, trust is absolutely fundamental to achieve success in peak performing organizations. Bob Gilruth was tremendously talented at bringing out the best in individuals. He did it uh, through quiet influence, let's say. He would just meet with people. He would talk to people. He would continue to ask questions. He would have a dialogue with them about what they thought was the best course of action. He would contribute what he thought was the best course of action. And everyone that worked with him knew that he was an incredibly talented engineer. So if he was making a suggestion, that actually helped them look at things from a totally different perspective. So he was one of these individuals who was always present, always influencing the organization, which is the definition of leadership, but essentially enabling the people, the team around them to do their best in going forward to achieve these challenging goals. Hmm. I like how you say he was always present. So true leadership presence, he was an example of that. And throughout the book, you also underscored the need for leaders to allow emerging leaders and younger leaders uh, and team members, everyone to speak up. You uh, highlight the challenges of or some of the program's vulnerabilities in order to succeed. However, many of these emerging leaders and team players and even many experienced and successful professionals do not speak up when they notice things uh, that are going not accordingly to what we expected. And uh, you praise George Abbey throughout the book and even say that he would perk up when you yourself, Dave, highlighted challenges and vulnerabilities. George was happy that you identified them, but he didn't hold you responsible for finding a solution. He wanted to know so that he could do something about it. So this speaks to me about a leader who wants to provide psychological safety for his team. So how did he go about doing this? Well, George Abbey has been referred to by a number of people as one of the single most important individuals in the history of the human space program and NASA's program. I was very fortunate to work for him for a couple of years. I was the director of space and life sciences, wow. working directly for Mr. Abbey. It uh, was a remarkable experience. But he first joined the uh, space program back in the mid-1960s, played a critical role working with George Lowe in uh, the return to flight after the tragic loss of Apollo 1. And the thing that George Abbey did best at that time was go out into the organization, meet with individuals within the organization to find out what was really going on. And when I worked for him, he was center director at Johnson Space Center. He still did the same thing. He knew everything that was going on in the organization. In fact, he knew what was going on in my organization as well. What he wanted from the leaders is for us to come forward and to be candid in the challenges that we were working on. It, it was really, um, I think what he was looking for was to make sure that we had identified the problem, that we were working on a solution for the problem. And it didn't matter so much that the solution emerged right away. What was critical is that we were working to find the best possible solution. And uh, he had faith that we would uh, be able to do that. If something didn't work out, he never, uh, there was never any punishment for something not working out. Mm. What, what he wanted to know was the truth about what is working, what's not working. And if it's not working, how are you planning on fixing it? That plan was important and he held us accountable to uh, performing against that plan. Mm -hmm. 
it's so important to be able to speak up without fear of retribution, right? Uh, there's a quote from, uh, in the book from Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, she says, you gain strength, courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You must do the thing you think you cannot do. And this is in reference to sending humans to the moon. So for those inside NASA, uh, Apollo 8, um, it was particularly memorable as a bold step forward to achieving the goal of putting humans on the moon by the end of the decade. So it was a mission whose mandate changed at the last minute. And no one wanted to repeat the Apollo 1 fire. So when making a decision, we need to consider the speed in which we make the decision and the quality of our decision. So what leadership lesson was learned when they were faced with this last minute change due to technical and operational challenges? So there were a number of really important leadership lessons. Arguably, it was George Lowe who had the idea to reconfigure the Apollo 8 mission and send the command service module to orbit the moon and come back to Earth, a really critical first step in getting to the Apollo 11 landing in 1969. So first of all, great leaders have to be visionary. Second thing is George Lowe engaged a discussion about the risk involved in sending humans to the moon with all the senior leaders at Johnson Space Center with NASA headquarters to be able to determine whether or not they'd achieve this objective. So not only was he visionary, he engaged the whole leadership team in a discussion to get advice from the experts at the time as to uh, <clears throat> whether or not they'd be able to succeed. So I think it was really the combination of both that was critical. The other thing that's remarkable is they had literally six months to put the crew together, train and reconfigure the mission, put the crew together, train to go to the moon, orbit the moon and bring them back. An unbelievable story of success from a training perspective, from a hardware perspective, but arguably from a management perspective, controlling all the risks involved and making that bold visionary decision. Mm -hmm. Leadership is so multifaceted. Um, and, you know, that was truly demonstrated in that case. My next question relates to transformational versus transitional leadership changes. You stress a lot of, uh, excuse me, on getting to know an organization's culture in order to change it. So you quoted Joe Rothenberg, the, the former director of Goddard Space Flight Center, and NASA Associate Administrator for Space Flight, who said, people are the key ingredient. You can't change the culture by just changing the culture. First, you've got to change the value system. Know what they want to do. What are their motivations? And then the culture will change. So how, how are some of the ways that leaders can change the value system of their organization? Now, there's a lot of different approaches. I was really lucky to work with Joe Rothenberg as his deputy for about a year or so. But leaders, when they come into the organization, first of all, they may or may not have a bias about organizational culture. From my perspective as a leader, culture is critical. Culture determines everything about how things work in that organization. 
And the culture essentially is defined in the corporate values, how people work on a day-to-day basis in the organization. If you come in as a senior leader and say, I'm just going to change the values without engaging in any conversation at all with the remainder of the team, it's going to be a problem. It's, it's simply not going to work. Values are critical. Values are things that are very important to organizations, are very important to people. It's sort of the DNA of the organization. So to be able to come in and modify values, there's got to be a lot of engagement with the team. When I was the CEO at Southlake Regional Health Center in Newmarket, we had a set of corporate values that identified our corporate culture. It was called the Southlake Way. And in the whole time that I was CEO, the only thing that I did with the corporate values was add one of them. I just added one corporate value called Speak Up. And uh, to be able to do that, I engaged the entire hospital team in dialogue about corporate values, et cetera. And understanding the importance of corporate values, we had a love your corporate value day at one time on Valentine's Day, when people went to the cafeteria, they get little heart-shaped sticky notes. And we said, write on there the corporate value that resonates the most with you. And we put together a book, actually an electronic book about these notes and the stories people told about the importance of the corporate values. So the values of the organization reflect the people in the organization. The way in which to change a culture in the organization is to reach out to the people, talk about the values, and in some cases, maybe have conversations about, are we living our values? Are we living up to them? Do we engage with uh, our corporate values on a day-to-day basis? And then through changing our core values, we can change the culture of the organization. Mm. I'll try and remember that next Valentine's Day. <laughs> what, what a superb idea. And you know, you, you also use a very interesting term uh, in the book, uh, a term that I, I think was a NASA's term, tiger teams, um, which NASA uh, name, you know, it, it's a name used at NASA wherein a small group of technical experts is put together to solve a very specific challenge within a short time frame. And these tiger teams were crucial to NASA's success. So how can tiger teams be used within large organizations today and even bureaucratic organizations to succeed? Well, one of the neat parts about NASA is it has such a rich organizational history. So Tiger teams, they go right right back to the 1960s, and NASA used them in the Mercury, Gemini, Apollo programs, particularly Apollo 13, the famous Tiger teams led by Gene Kranz and Glenn Lunny that enabled uh, NASA to return the Apollo 13 crew successfully to Earth. So Tiger teams are formed when you have a time-critical operational issue. So any time-critical problem that needs to be solved in the organization is amenable to a tiger team. They're created by people who have the technical competency, the knowledge, subject matter experts that you need to be able to solve the problem, and that they have the behavioral competencies to be great team players and to be able to work together. So you form the team and they immediately go to transforming and producing the work that they need to do. And I think the key to success is to realize that Tiger teams have short, limited problems, you know, weeks, maybe, maybe a couple of months, but we're not talking about putting a Tiger team together to solve a a problem that will last a year or two years. So a couple of great examples. When I went to Southlake Regional Health Center, I implemented the concept of Tiger teams at Southlake. One of the greatest examples when I was there as CEO 
we had the, the wave of Ebola that was coming and people were very worried about that. So we put together an Ebola readiness tiger team. Their task was to make sure that we as an institution were ready to deal with any potential cases of Ebola that might arrive. You can imagine doing the same thing for COVID readiness where a hospital team would put together a tiger team to assess the readiness and their ability to respond to all the challenges faced by COVID. So tiger teams are for time critical problems that require critical solutions. They're made up of subject matter experts that are willing to get the job done. Yeah, quick and nimble. Yeah. All right. So Dave, um, there's um, Gerson Meyer's commitment. I'm sure the Germans uh, listening uh, might wanna correct me here in my pronunciation, but um, so his commitment to learning Russian helped him earn the trust and commitment of the Russian team, which apparently played a critical role in the success of the mission throughout the process. This to me speaks to today's hot topic of diversity and inclusion. Number one, recognizing our differences. And number two, making yourself part of the in-group by learning to speak the same language is in fact what he did. So how did NASA leverage diversity and inclusion to increase performance at the time? You know, I, again, I come back to organizational culture. So for Bill Gerstenmeier to really succeed and thrive working with the Russian space program, and be embraced by the culture in mission control in Moscow and the, the uh, team in the Russian Space Agency, learning the language was a fundamental first step to being part of that culture. And by being part of that culture, he was then able to be involved in decisions and uh, be able to provide the best possible support to NASA astronauts on board the Mir space station as we were getting ready for the International Space Station. Well, that legacy goes way back. You know, Mike Fole, one of the U.S. astronauts in the Mir program, did the same thing. We really spent a lot of time learning to speak Russian, and that paid huge dividends for him when he was on orbit. So you go back to the beginning of NASA. Keith Glennon, uh, Hugh Dryden, they're putting together the, the two founding administrators. It was Glennon first, then Dryden. They're putting together this team. And they're basically looking for the best and the brightest. The culture is all about finding the most talented people you can get. And we've all seen the movie Hidden Figures, a great example of NASA reaching out and getting the most talented, these incredible female mathematicians, uh, African-American uh, female mathematicians that were uh, incorporated into the NASA program to be able to play a critical role in actually getting humans to space. Interestingly, NASA also went up to Canada and uh, after the cancellation of the Avro Aero program, they hired 25 engineers from the Aero program. So it was really more about competency and by building the, the competency of the team. So whatever your background was, if you were the best at what you were doing, then you would become part of this team. And I think that was something that NASA has always been focusing on. And it turns out that over time, it's become an organization that really does try and focus on inclusion and equal opportunity. Hmm. Well, we must say that from its earliest day that NASA was truly committed to hiring the best. And fortunately, NASA had the funding and plenty of support in Congress as everyone wanted to beat the Russians to the race, right? 
So that space race was in full heat. NASA had to hire a lot of people. Many had experience with technology, but there were also the leadership principles to consider. One of the leadership insights you share is that we hire for expertise and then delegate to drive results. So in order to do that well, what do you delegate to drive results? What do you need to keep an eye on? So, you know, I think one of the critical elements is hiring the best people, providing them with ongoing training, but more importantly, being very clear in your expectations as to their job responsibilities and the tasks that they have to be able to perform. A lot of times in large organizations, you know, whether you have 4,000 people, 10,000 people working in an organization, we're, we're good about hiring people. We're pretty good about defining roles and responsibilities and expectations, but sometimes we're not very good about accountability and closing the loop to make sure that people are actually doing the job that we've, uh, that we've delegated to them, that they're doing it to our expectations. So making sure that we're focusing not only on performance, but we're focusing on accountability by having regular dialogue, regular face-to-face -face meetings at different levels of the organization, getting together as groups to find out if they're able to achieve the targets. The actual delegation of the task is pretty straightforward to be able to do. The more challenging aspect is following up on how the team is doing and making sure that all the challenges are being identified and any unresolved issues are being uh, resolved. And that was George Abbey's key to success is that he always knew what those challenges were. And sometimes those challenges don't filter all the way up the management chain to the leader of the organization because people, they always want to talk about what's working, not what's not working. Hmm. And in fact, you know, a good reminder for today, because we're not, you know, getting together as often as we did certainly in the past year and to keep up with everything and keep in touch with everyone is critical. Dave, there's one of my, uh, one of my favorite passages in the book was describing project management as a guacamole. <laughs> you solve one challenge only to find another. Here we speak resilience, or at least that's what this implies to me. Based on your experience, how can leaders help themselves and those around them to build resilience in the, in the face of chaos, crisis, and challenges? I think it starts from the top. You know, this quote actually comes from Joe Rothenberg, who I had the pleasure of working with at uh, NASA headquarters when he was the associate administrator. And I, I think the first thing is for leaders to be able to demonstrate that we need to expect the unexpected. We can't get flustered by these challenges that come out of nowhere. It's simply let's solve the problem. Another problem appears. Let's solve the problem. Okay, now we've got something else to work on. That's the way it is in big organizations. And that's the way it is when you're trying to do things like send humans to the moon or send a Hubble Space Telescope into space and get the incredible images that Hubble's done or build an international space station. There are always gonna be unexpected challenges. So being able to deal with that with res resilience, with relentless optimism, with uh, perseverance, is, it's all really critical to be able to role model that for the team. And the leader really does set the stage in all of this. But if the leader is not bothered by it, is fundamentally has a degree of equanimity in dealing with it all and simply treats it as another problem that our team will be able to solve, then it becomes like whack-a-mole. It's just we do deal with right. this one, deal with that one, and away you go. 
And I like when you say optimism, because we know that the leader who's optimistic is usually better at solving problems. So during the space station era, NASA implemented leadership and team training that enabled crews to spend time living and working together before going into space. So what was so important about that training? It was critical for us to be able to succeed. One of the most important debrief points of the Mir space program, where we sent U.S. astronauts to the Russian space station in preparation for the International Space Station, was learning about the behavioral aspects of being in space. We call it expeditionary behavior. After the Mir program, we NASA developed an expeditionary behavior training program to train all the international partner astronauts who would be working on board the International Space Station. Expeditionary behavior includes leadership training, followership training, how to work together in teams. And arguably, it's something that I think all of us should think about as we go through our career. Generally, we're really focused on our technical competencies, all those skills that we think get us the jobs that uh, we want to be able to have. It's based on our technical competencies. But in the space program, we came to realize a long time ago, it's a blend of technical competencies and behavioral competencies that are critical. So thinking about building your leadership skills, a lifetime journey of continually building your leadership skills, building your teamwork skills, trying to figure out how to have those courageous conversations, those followership moments mm -hmm. that can change an organization. They're all critical. Yeah. And, you know, it's so true. And, you know, there's the old saying, we hire for technical and often fire for behavioral. And, and I think that's something in leadership we need to remember that uh, the behavioral piece is important. And I'm sure that for them working together and living together before uh, going into space uh, was so, so important. Um, you know, this has been uh, uh, a wonderful uh, time with you. And I know we're, we, we need to wrap up at this point. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for uh, joining us today. And I'd like to wrap up with our lightning round. And, uh, and you know, we, we have uh, just a very few simple questions, more personal. What is the recent book or author that uh, has impacted uh, how you see the world today? I think the one that's had the greatest impact was David Johnson's book on trust. Oh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I agree with that. That is a great read. And the last thing you did that scared you. Oh, riding my Ducati motorcycle in busy rush hour traffic in Toronto. I don't know. Sometimes it's a little unpredictable out there. Oh, I think I ride a bicycle. And I was just saying yesterday that riding my bicycle on the streets of Toronto is not is something very scary. So I can relate to that. A habit or skill that most people don't know about you. I really enjoy photography, whether I'm in the Antarctic, the Arctic, underwater in space. I really like to be able to capture the moment with a great photograph. And, uh, you know, whenever I have any spare time, I'm usually out in the woods with my camera trying to take pictures. I do it solely for myself. I don't generally don't put, put them online. Well, I'm sure you're an amazing photographer. You're just a multi-talented man, Dave. Your favorite place to go on vacation? Diving on the Great Barrier Reef. It's incredible. Oh, wow. 
And what would you say you're the most hopeful about for the future? I think it's the incredible power of collaboration. And we've got a great example with the development of the vaccines that uh, we're now all using to get us out of this COVID crisis. It was that collaboration between scientists worldwide that helped find the path forward. Thank you for being here uh, with us and for writing this book con that contains like just countless leadership lessons for today's leaders. I encourage everyone to get a copy as soon as possible because I found there, this is such an insightful work into leadership. And I'm sure that you will say the same after you've read it. And I feel that um, there, this is such a good book that personally, I, I couldn't put it down. And actually one of my staff said, you know, I read it. It's actually a really, really good book. She said, I, I couldn't put it down. And I said, I know it's the same for me. So I know that everyone, like once you get your copy and you get reading, you will just love it. So Dave, thank you so, so much for today. Oh, thanks for the kind words. It's been a pleasure being here and look forward to our next time to chat. Thank you so much, Dave. Much continued success to you and Elizabeth. Thanks very much. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye now. To all our listeners, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and I encourage you to connect with us. Please go to our website at corporateclassing.com for additional resources, blogs, and videos that you may find helpful to enhance your leadership presence. Thank you for listening to Power Up Your Presence podcast. The passion, the presence, the power. Every morning, set your intentions towards your dreams. Some may refer to goals. We like the word dreams. Sounds more exciting and not as hard to think about. Until next time, power up, step up, lead up.